Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This is not a diving podcast with Scuba. Welcome to the show. I'm Scuba. This is the Not A Diving Podcast. I'm extremely excited about this week's episode. I must confess, there was a chance that it was going to be late this week because we had to record it in two parts, which I've managed to uh, splice together in a way which isn't <laughs> shouldn't be too obvious. But... Yeah, it is in on time. It's Tuesday, Tuesday morning, if you're getting this bright and early. And like I said, we're here and we have Spoonie on the show, which is, like I said, extremely exciting for me. This has been in the works for a little while. Basically, what we're doing with this episode is getting the story of UK Garage, which I was hoping to extract from MJ Cole on his episode but we didn't really. We got MJ Cole's story instead, which is absolutely fine. And actually, that has been the most popular episode that we've done so far. So that's throwing no shade on Matt whatsoever. But the story of UK Garage is one that I wanted to have told at least once on the show. And I think in the spirit of previous episodes, we will get it told at least once more from a different angle. But Spoonie is as good a person as any I mean, putting that lightly, Spinney is arguably the best person to tell this story, certainly in the conversation, because he was absolutely part of it. Part of the dream team, who were one of the biggest acts in the real, real peak heyday period of UK Garage. They had a show on Radio 1, they had a TV show, as he mentions in the conversation, which I say I'd completely forgotten about. But yeah, they were on Radio 1 for ages. They were absolutely seminal participants in the UK Garage peak period. So having him on is absolutely fantastic, I have to say. Really, really hyped. And um, I think you're going to enjoy the conversation, to put it mildly. Just one thing to clarify, for listeners outside the UK, we talk about 606 in the conversation, 
which is the BBC's flagship football phone-in radio programme, which Spoonie was a presenter of for a while. So if you're outside the UK, you definitely won't know that. But it's a pretty big deal. Basically, what happens is Saturday night, after all the football finishes, they have a big phone-in on Five Live, which is one of the major BBC radio stations. And if you've been to a game, you have to have been to a game to get on the show. You phone in and complain or celebrate about your team, essentially. And like I say, it's a big deal. So just clarification on that. So just before we get started, if you want to support the show, then you can do on Patreon, patreon.com slash scuba official. There is bonus content that goes up there every week. For example, this weekend, I reviewed the Slovakia Spotify top 10, believe it or not. That's the kind of crazy shit that I do on Patreon. It is quite fun, quite entertaining. Um, well, I have done previous Spotify top 10s before. I was suggested to do the Slovakia one by a, a patron in the Discord. So there's that kind of stuff going on. And there is also a tier which essentially gets you on the Hot Flush promo list. So it's generally good. And if you're enjoying the show, we would be extremely appreciative if you could support us directly in that fashion. If you can't and don't want to, that's also cool. No problem. Leave us a review or a rating wherever you listen to this podcast. Hit the five-star button, of course. Follow the Spotify playlist. There's a link in the show notes to that. Contains all the UK garage you could possibly desire this week, along with all the episodes as well. And finally, if you've got anything to say about the show, then join us in the Discord server, hotflushrecordings.com slash Discord. And um, yeah, there is a not a diving podcast channel in there as well as all the hot flush business so yeah without further delay it is spoonie spoonie welcome to the show how are you doing sir thank you very much for having me um yeah always a pleasure to talk UK Garage of Music. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's that's what we're going to be doing, right? So Garage is it's an area that we haven't touched too much on the show up till now. Obviously, we had MJ Cole on. The legendary. Yeah, yeah. And, and Matt hooked us up. So um, like one of the things that I didn't get out of that chat with Matt was the sort of uh, like the detailed like history of the whole thing from the insider's perspective. So that's definitely something that we're going to be getting into in the next hour or two. But um, just before we get started on that, I mean, you've had a pretty varied career like outside music as well. So just tell me, give me an, give me an idea about what you're doing now, like with yourself. I mean, I, I know you're definitely still involved in music, but like, um, yeah, what have you been up to in, in sort of like the last year or two? Well, I mean, now, eight weeks ago now, I started um, a new show on Radio 2, Friday night. So I'm on every Friday on Radio 2. I also work for the Premier League, um, I have a love of football and have done all my life. In fact, if I think back, football was most probably my first true love, even before before music, which sounds ridiculous to say, but it most probably was. So I'm able to have a, a career now where I'm able to work in football and work in music. I'm still gigging, um, doing events. I'm curating a few more events um, than I ever have done um, before. Um, so that's that's really good, able to sort of bring my sort of idea and flavour to a to an event. I'm doing my Garage Classical project, um, which 2023 is looking good. We're going to be doing at least three shows next year. So yeah, all, all said and done, it is quite varied. Um, 
I try and get on my push bike. I try and play golf. I enjoy boxing as a another form of exercise. So, yeah, lo- lo- lots going on in my world. Yeah, nice. Okay, so what was your background in football? Because I mean, I was a big fan of the Dream Team, and I was super into Garage. But then when you showed up on six oh six, it was like, wow, okay, <laughs> what's going on here? <laughs> so what was? Presumably, you played football then at a decent level bef- before getting into music. That sounds like. Yeah, I played. I played to a decent level. Um, I played sort of. You know, I played semi-pro. I didn't, you know, I used to, I, I, I loved my football and I've always loved my football. So I used to spend, um, maybe if you speak to the Radio 1 bosses at the time, too much time speaking about football, which was bad in one <laughs> aspect. But in another aspect, the boss of Five Live heard it and then asked me to come over and do 606 on, on there. So I was seven years on Five Live uh, doing 606, um, and then, you know, I've worked, started working for the Premier League, I think, 2013-14 season. So, yeah, it's been, you know, it, it's been good and it's, it's nice to be able to do different things, really. What is it like doing 606? Um, like at a general level? I mean, I, I've actually phoned in there before, but I didn't get on the air. I was, I was, I was gutted. Uh, what's it like presenting it? Yeah, it's, it's good, actually. I mean, we you, you stay right across all the football. Um because you just don't know what the next call is going to be, right? So, and obviously, because you're not on camera, you do have the ability to check up and just clarify a, a, a few facts. But right, yeah, yeah, I was, I, yeah, I stayed right across all of the football um, and it wasn't just Premier League. I was, you know, very well versed on Championship League One, League Two at the time. Um, and not in great detail. And I suppose the key to it was not pretending that you knew if you didn't know something, just say you didn't know. Um, but I was, you know, I was across the the headlines and maybe the, the sub headline of, of of most of the leagues here in the UK and Europe as well. So, yeah, football, like I said, is it's a great love of mine, and it doesn't really feel like work because it's something that you do in your spare time. Yeah, okay, fair. I know you're a United fan, and let's not, not get into that. Actually, are you on you? I thought you were. No, I'm a Liverpool fan. Oh, really? Wow. Mm. Okay. Well, that's mm, okay. He had a good few years then. Fair, fair deuce. Why did I think you're a United fan? I, I have no idea of all the teams in the world <laughs> you could have picked. <laughs> I know exactly. Right. Yeah. Anyway. All right. Let's not get bogged down in this. Let's talk about music. Let's just start at the beginning. I think is probably as good a way as any of doing this. So, how did you get into DJing in the first place? So I was at my local youth club, a place called Milton Gardens. Um, on the borders of Hackney and Islington I lived right on the border of the two um, and this was on the Islington side of the road the Islington side of Matthias Road and at the youth club I saw my friend DJing and I was watching him go from one turntable to another it was a built-in Citronic mixer and I was watching it uh, or turntable I was watching him go from one deck to the other with no pauses uh, I knew both the records but I didn't hear the gap and was watching him and trying to work out what he was doing which to me at the time was magic um, and it still is a magical it still is a magical thing um, that, that space in between two records um, the third record what I call it um, so yeah I was watching him creating this magic and I decided that I didn't want to do the magic that Paul Daniels did. I wanted to do the magic that Steve Howard was doing. When was this? What sort of era? 1985. Right. Okay. Do you remember what were what were the records that he was playing when the penny dropped for you? Oh, wow. Um, what was he playing? <laughs> I mean, what I can tell you is when he came over to my house, 
One of the records that we mixed was uh, DSM Warrior Groove. And it was the similar, it was like the similar track to Harley Quinn 4's Set It Off. It was like, it was a house. Actually, technically, it would be a house uh, beat. The the drum programming was definitely house, even though the tempo was something like, like 110 or 12 or something like that. Um, So it wasn't like you're you're, 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 you're 130, but it was a house programming, hi-hat, skippy, um, four four. So okay, the penny dropped for you. Yeah, and this, so so we're mid eighties. Now, this so this is pre acid house, right? Yeah. So there's a, there's a number of things that we're gonna number of sort of like key cultural moments then. So so how old were you then? Like you're like mid mid late teens then or something? Eighty five. Uh, eight nine eighty five. I was fifteen. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So um, were you going out to clubs at that point? No, I, I, I wasn't because I, I was still very much at school, still very much playing football. My weekends, Saturdays and Sundays, you know, school team, um, Saturday morning football with the school. I was doing that until I was like 18, 19 because in the sixth form. And then I used to play Sundays for my local side. So even though I loved the music and you, you just mentioned Acid House, I was still, I would go out occasionally, but more in the summer when... Oh, well, look, some of the, the big, real big events were on, but largely because I was playing football all the time. And I would go to, I would go to events, but not, I wasn't like a raver, raver as such. I was definitely into my music. I was definitely a DJ, but I wasn't a raver at that point. So at what point were you buying records and mixing at home and that sort of stuff? Then, yeah, 15, I was, I, I, I yeah. once Steve came over and, gave me a lesson it was then now responsibility to start collecting and mixing and buying and playing and having to sacrifice because you know, I had no income but I had, this, I had this hobby that um yeah couldn't be denied so um yeah that's where all of and my it money requires went. money right as well <laughs> a lot of money I you know I look back at some of the times you know 15 16 traveling across London bus tube bus again to go and buy a record that might have been 15 or 20 pound that I'd have had to save up for or, you know, do some extra chores around the house or favours for aunts and uncles or whatever it was. And I would spend my money on, on that record, you know, um, and happily do so. Cause some of the, some of the trucks, I remember um, when paid in full, the cold cut remix of that came out, I was living in, uh, still living in there, new and green and having to travel to bluebird records, Northwest London, which I'd never been to in my life. Um, but I had to take public transport to get over there to get this record that cost £20. White label of it. So, okay. And so was it like a broadly kind of house kind of sound that you that kind of got you interested in the first place? It wasn't really, you know. We, we, we It was largely, I'd say, a, like a soul vibe. Um, mm. But, you know, at the time, we... we where I grew up in Hackney, it was so multicultural. You know, I had a, you know, an English couple to our to our left. Uh, we had an Irish couple to our right. We had an African, West African family above us. Um, I had some, you know, friends from the subcontinent who lived across the road. So you were just affected all the time by different cultures, different sounds, different flavors, different smells. So I was into everything and anything that had a groove. Um, 
Madness, uh, the specials favourites of mine, Debbie Harry and, uh, and Blondie. Um, and of course, my mum coming from the Caribbean, we're into our soca and calypso music and reggae, Bob Marley, John Holt, Dennis Brown. Um, and then as I got a little bit older and started developing what might have been my own musical taste, it was the likes of Luther Vandross and Prince and Michael Jackson. And, you know, we, before we went through the lovers rock phase of Carol Thompson and, 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 and Sandra Cross and, you know, through, so it was really, 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 really eclectic. If it had a groove, I was into it. Okay. And so this is interesting because I I had a guy called Gerald on the show and we were talking about the similar sort of era, but in Manchester. Legend. And he was sort of describing to me the kind of like dance clubs that he'd go to and, um, you know, they're just the kind of general, so I guess like the similar sort of thing, sort of eclectic kind of vibe, right? Which eventually then kind of resolved into that acid house thing in sort of 87, 88. So like for you, I mean, like... Um, like the, the kind of music you've been talking about is very much, well, it, it's not necessarily like squarely club music. So like, was there a point at which your your taste started kind of like going into that sort of direction into a kind of what someone might like recognise as, as a kind of club DJ? Uh, you know, the thing is, it's not, I've never exclusively only listened to sort of to one genre. You know, that I mentioned all those acts before, we then got, loose ends a little bit later on and soul to soul and rick rick clark who was a big uh, a big soul act from hackney at the time and even though when i started listening to tyree cooper and a guy called gerald and kerry chandler maybe a little bit later on and masters of work a little bit later on i still was very much listening to and into my soul music so i've never ever wavered away from that even though people know me for our brand of dance music and during um during lockdown i started streaming and i did a show on a sunday called the brunch where i exclusively played rare groove uh reggae soca um just very like the music that i grew up on and just to i think it was just a i don't know part of it would have been to show people i i do it but just for my own uh, musical integrity to play the music that I don't really get a chance to play out publicly anymore. Yeah, and enjoyment, I guess, as much as anything else, right? Because that's the thing. I, mean, I, I know I've had a similar sort of experience where you, you almost get typecast by the audience. So understandably, right? Because people know you for something and that's what they want to hear from you when they're, when they're out. But obviously, I think for so many people, like you just described, it's like yeah, a musical taste is, is going to be so much wider than that, right? Absolutely. And I think... Even what you was mentioning there about a guy called Gerald, that when you would go to um, to the big raves, they weren't one genre. Like DJs would go up and play their own vibe and people would dance to whatever that vibe was. Um, you know, whether back then it might have been Trevor Fung or Danny Ramplin or Fabio and Groove Rider. Um, they, they, these guys all played all play different. It wasn't just techno. It wasn't just house. Some of the records that I remember hearing at what acid house inverted commas raised for the first time were, you know, ridiculous. Like the beloved come together right now. Oh yeah. Yeah. Sweet harmony. So tunes like that would be played like main 
mindsets four o'clock <laughs> in a, in the field, but then you'd also you you also might hear demob. We call it acid. Do you know what I mean? So it wasn't people just went out and listened to good music, and of course, an, an honourable mention to a guy called Gerald and that classic that is Voodoo Ray. I mean, the first time I heard that, it was like nothing I'd nothing I'd heard before, not in dance music anyway. So yeah, big up. Yeah, absolutely. I mean that. I mean, it's it's so interesting that you like pull out that kind of multi-genre thing because I think like I when I first started going out like I'm I definitely missed that era but I was I kind of caught the ends like the early jungle era when it was still sort of part of hardcore and you'd have mm-hmm. hardcore DJs and, and jungle DJs playing in the same room yeah. and I just got the end of that that like sort of 94 sort of a sort of period where and that was I guess the tail end of that multi-genre era but like um, and, and then it gradually got more and more sort of balkanized, right? So like you had to be going like every night was this tiny, well, what we ended up with was this every night was this tiny subgenre and that's all you hear, right? <laughs> and it's like, yeah. it's a bit of a shame that that's happened. But tell me, um, like just, just going back to that, you know, the early period and when you, when you started going out, like as a raver, because obviously, I mean, by the sound of things, like it, you, you gradually kind of got more and more into it. So, I mean, and for, for quite a lot of people, um, for quite a lot of kids, there's there's a kind of moment where music becomes the main thing, right? And it sounds like football was obviously a big thing, but there must have been a moment in which he, in which like music started to take precedent over football. Is that is that fair? It wasn't. A, it wasn't a conscious decision. Um, what actually happened, I, were, I, I was working nine to five. I, I changed my job in about 1995. I was working in a job centre and then went to work for a company that um, repaired Apple Macintosh computers. That's what everyone called them back then. Uh, we now call them Apple Macs um, in the design district of uh, of London in Clerkenwell area. So I was based there selling ma- selling maintenance for, for Apple Macs. And then the DJing started, you know, the booking started to come in, um, we hadn't quite formed the dream team, but I'd met Timmy and Mikey. I was on. Yeah, I was just, let me just let me let me just interrupt you there because like, we've we've jumped forward a fair bit there, right? So, yeah. tell me about like you said you started DJing as a as a kind of hobbyist when you're you know, yeah. fifteen in like mid eighties. So, so so in that sort in those ten years, let's let's not just discount those ten years completely, <laughs> right? So, tell tell me about the kind of journey that I mean on the musical side, right? Like to get to those, to, you know, from one place to another. I mean that 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 was a massive ten years. I think that's the the ten years that I earned my stripes, um, started to, and I guess made a name for myself. That would be the platform, at least the springboard for a lot of what came after. Um, I sort of was DJing local youth clubs in and around Hackney and Islington, kind of making a little bit of a name for myself. Um, people knew that I DJed, but, you know, DJing was saying that you just did it as a hobby then. And then it got to around, I think, 1992-93, where I started um, doing a bit of pirate radio, which obviously gives you a little bit of a, a bigger field than a marketplace to to perform in um which stations london underground was my station um uh, it, so in north london there were two big stations really london underground and freak fm so um I, I was on london underground um which is where i met timmy and mikey um not straight away but eventually uh, met timmy and mikey and then you know you start doing little events for the for the station and then there's ads and then people hear your name and they know your name and then 
you get to do another event and you do another party, then you do another event and it just was snowballing like really, like really, really slowly. But I came to a point where the cost of records uh, were eating too much into my monthly salary and I had to make a choice whether I was going to continue DJing, um, I'd always DJ or stop buying records. And I said, if I don't start getting, earning some money regularly, come the end of the month, then I'm going to have to stop sort of buying music. And lo and behold, the universe served me a good hand. I got a residency, a, a little, a little club, um, in Islington called, uh, called Riley's. Um, I think it held about 75 people total, maybe a hundred, <laughs> yeah. but I was doing every Friday and Saturday night from, from uh, 11 till two, three hours on a Saturday, three hours, three hours on a Friday. Yeah. That's how you learn to DJ, right? That's, that's proper practice hours right there. Yeah. And I got, I was getting a hundred pound a week for, for both, for, for both sets. But when I look at it now, what that allowed me to do was to stay one as a DJ two, I could buy my music and three, most importantly, I could tell people this is where I'm playing come and hear me. So that was an absolute, you know, like a godsend um, to my DJ career. And then it just, you know, from that point, it, it just, it snowballed um, with the pirate radio, with that and the gigs. And what were you, let me, sorry, let me interrupt you there and ask, what were you playing in those sets, those residency sets? It was quite sort of housey, you know, it might've been the original version of Show Me Love on vinyl, it might have been um what else would I have been playing? Like the Love I Lost. Um it was a local sort of bar club. It wasn't a club actually, it was a local bar. So it was full of regulars all the time. They wanted to come and have a good time. it wasn't me trying to be too tricky and too clever. What I would do was play, you know, the deeper cuts earlier in the night, um, which were more for me, but um yeah, it was quite quite sing along. Um yeah, just fun. Yeah, just fun. And okay, so in, in the sort of background to this, I want to keep half an eye on like sort of garage developing as a genre and becoming more of a thing. Obviously, like it was always a kind of London sound, but it obviously gradually kind of like moved out from there. But like, so at what point in this kind of period did you start identifying with the genre? That would have been, that would have been sort of mid nineties, really. Um, maybe 95, 96. Okay. So a little bit later, not much like 95, 96. And the reason I know that is because I had decided that in order to pursue the DJing career, I was going to have to leave the civil service. going to have to, cause I worked in a job center for seven years out of school. So I was like, I needed to have a job that would give me a little bit more flexibility. And that's when I went to work for the company who repaired Apple Macs because it was a small company and I knew that I would have a little bit more freedom. Um, wasn't as regimented. And it was during that period um, that things really started to snowball. So at that point I was playing out two, three, maybe four times a weekend. I might've been getting, you know, a hundred pound or 150 pound a set. So I was earning sort of 600 pound a week and suddenly, well, I'm earning two and a half thousand pound a month here. But I need to be thinking, is working full-time the best thing for me? Um, and I remember 
then having a residency at the Arches uh, for Pleasure Playground, which would then become twice as nice. We'll get onto right. that later. Yeah, um, yeah. The Pleasure Playground, and that was on a Sunday. So even though it finished early at 11 o'clock, um, it still was a little bit of strain to get back to Edmonton where I was living at the time and then get up at half five, half six to, to get into work. So I remember going into my boss at the time and saying, look, is there any chance um, I could go down to four days a week, not coming into the office on a Monday? You can pay me pro rata just for the days that I come in, but I can keep 100% of my sales commission. So he was like, all right, that's fine. That, that sounds fair. Um, why do you want to do that? I told him about the DJing thing. He was like, oh, really? Anyway, I, I now had no Mondays in the office, so I could concentrate 100% using that day on a bit of recovery and my fledgling DJ career. But the growth and speed of growth then just was, it was exponential to the one day that I was putting into it. And, you know, the fees went up because there's only so many, so many gigs you could do on a Friday and a Saturday night or a Thursday night doing horny at Legends in in, in the West End. Um, So that then, about four months later, I had to go back to him and say, look, is there any chance I could go down to three days a week? Um, (laughs) Same deal as before. You just pay me for the three days. Um, I keep 100% of my sales commission and I said to him look if there's a if there's a urgent meeting that they can't do on a Tuesday Wednesday or Thursday then I'll go and do it on a Friday or on a Monday but Fridays and Mondays I won't I won't be in so he was he was fine with that and and I've done quite well with regards to keeping my numbers up sales wise so it didn't matter where I was as long as I was doing what I was meant to be doing so so that was that and 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 Daniel was really happy and he was fine with that and <laughs> lo and behold, uh, that extra day that I put into the DJing career, then I had to go back two months later and go, look, I, I can't do this anymore. I, I, I need to resign. And he, he laughed and he said, look, there's, there'll always be a job here for you. Thank you. Good luck with your career. And that was 19, that was 1997. Um, we joined KISS six months later. Two months after that, we joined Radio 1. And that was it. Wow. Okay. So you mentioned that you uh, you met the other guys on the station. Yeah, London Underground. I see Magic and Mikey B. That is to say. Mm. Tell me a bit about the kind of development of the relationship there, because I mean, you guys became like one of the biggest acts, really, in the garage sounds. Well, un- unambiguously, one of the biggest acts. So tell me about how you sort of came to work together and the sort of chemistry behind it and all that stuff. Um, interesting you use that word chemistry. I think our relationship was, I think there's a lot of mutual respect. All relationships are going to be built on respect, right? But there was so much chemistry between us. That's what drew us together initially because I would listen to both of their shows on the station before I really knew who they were. Now, Mikey was a legend in a, in a former incarnation of Top Buzz. And I, of course, knew of Top oh, Buzz. Oh, of course he was. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's, yeah, I did know that, but that's, wow. Yeah. Because, I mean, Top Buzz were, yeah, hardcore, proper legends, right? They, 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 there's no doubt about it that, um, you know, he, he was a legend. And, and, and I'm just going to take a brief moment to talk about Mikey here, because Mikey, is a, as, as, as a DJ in himself, he had been effectively through three generations of three different scenes and had been 
one of the biggest, if not the biggest acts in that scene three times. So he had a sound, a soul sound called, called Funky Express, um, Hayden from Tottenham, very well respected. If you speak to anyone in the street sounds now, if you spoke to sort of Ray from Fifth Avenue or Cass from Manhattan, you speak to these guys, they'll tell you Mikey B, Funky Express legend. He then went and formed Top Buzz, um, who were one of the, the biggest hardcore dance outfits of their time. And then he was a part of the dream team. Now I'm going to be biased to say that we were big, but I think we, you know, people knew of us in, in UK garage. Oh yeah, for sure. Man. So, so I, 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 I knew of Mikey, um, even though you'd have had no idea about me um, b- b- beforehand. So to, to get to sort of work with him and, and meet him was phenomenal. So I used to listen to his show on a Sunday. He used to do a show with Jason Kay. And I used to listen to Timmy uh, mixing with a vengeance. He used to call his show on a, on a Saturday afternoon. So Timmy as a, a technical guy mixing, I loved and had so much respect. Mikey B is a straight up DJ selector. I loved it. And I saw myself sitting somewhere in between the two anyway. So, you know, we met up, at, um, we used to have regular meetings for the Pirate Radio Station. So we met up there and then it worked out that we lived within like a mile of each other in North London. So we then started hanging out a little bit. We, they'd come around to mine because I'd like a, like the way I had my deck set up in the front room, they'd come over to mine and we'd make mixtapes and hang out and go and have dinner at Bullies, which was our local West Indian takeaway. Um, we'd go and do that and just spending spending time with each other, really getting to know each other and just fall in love with the, the characters and the personalities and the, the stories and the humour and everything that came with it. And we, you know, we quickly became brothers. We still are. Um, we still are musical brothers, even though we don't play out as much together anymore. Uh, Timmy's Timmy's effectively retired, but we still are brothers. So that was, you know, that was that. Then we decided we would do a couple of one-off specials on on London Underground. Let me let me stop you there. Let me let me let me stop you there a minute. Yeah, just going back to to their shows that you were listening to, and you mentioned Jason K as well. Yeah. So this is like proto UK garage, right? And and the kind of legend is all the, all the kind of received wisdom is the whole you know playing us records sped up yeah. and all that kind of stuff before the kind of uk producers really started doing it so so this is it is this what was getting played on those shows yeah not 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 exclusively because there was still um you know there's still still people about like you know grant nelson the whole nice and ripe yeah, yeah, explosion sure. yeah. um which they weren't they weren't really sped up then. They didn't have to be because Grant was here and Grant was making them with Richard Purcell exclusively or not. Um, so we already had that sound going on. Even though that sound was a UK version of US music, it still wasn't at that stage called UK Garage. I, I think that came a little bit later. So, But my show would be very much... My, my show actually might have been more US-based, more soulful... UK more more soulful US garage because at the time I was playing at Garage City, um, which was a straight vocal US house yeah, and disco, was, your house and garage. It? I remember that. What when you was that at? Barumba. Um, yeah, of course. So yeah, yeah. so Barumba on Shaftesbury Avenue, and then as UK garage started taking off, and I'm I'm sort of going back and forth on the timeline here. Um, UK garage started taking off. There was a, I can't remember which birthday it was for Garage City, but basically they had, they had the venue every Saturday night. And for the birthday, 
Barrymore was going to be too small. So they went to Vauxhall, which was called Podium at the time. It wasn't called Coliseum at the time. Right. Um, they went to Podium in Vauxhall, which meant that um, Barrymore was going to be free. And they did an, an event called Lords of the Underground, which myself and Matt Jamlamont played on the first Lords of the Underground, put it on sale. It was promoted by Kiss, sold out. Then they started doing them at what was then called Camden Palace, which is now called Coco. And so, so sorry, just to clarify that, so Lords of the Underground was then supposedly the kind of harder sort of like you, more UK sound. Is that what they meant by that? Yes. Yeah. So Lords of the Underground was the underground garage as opposed to Garage City. But yeah, got it. Yeah, it, but they put it at Bar Rumba because they had the venue and they needed to put another event on. And they thought, well, these guys over there are creating a little vibe for themselves. We'll put them in there. So that was by then... You know, UK Garage had now started to, it could be called UK Garage. Um, and that was it. Okay, so question which is jumping out at me is like the kind of UK Garage thing, I think is largely now defined by two-step. And the kind of 4-4 four, four thing is, it's almost, well, I, I was going to say an afterthought, but that's definitely not, not quite right. But like, it's definitely what, what people think of when they think of UK Garage now is that two-step kind of thing. So like at what point for you, and we are jumping around, I realise on the timeline here, but let's just let's just see, carry on and see where we get to. <laughs> like at what point did, did two-step start happening yeah, in, in a sort of like dominant kind of a way? You know what? I I don't even know if I would. I don't know if I think it's fair to say two step was dominant. I would say it was very distinctive, um, but I'm not sure if I would say it was dominant because there was always brilliant four four UK garage records being made. So right. whether that was you know MJ Cole could make two step or he'd make four four. DJ Zinc, of course, made amazing four four records. Jameson four four. Them two, two-step. So all of these guys, you know, Wookie would make 4-4 four, four and he'd make two-step. We made, Dream Team made more two-step than 4-4, four, four, but we did make 4-4. Four, four. So for me as a DJ, it was never either or. I can understand that two-step being quite a distinctive sound. Um, but the, like I said, the 4-4 four, four music was always there. It never, it never went away. And whether even tracks like... Um, tracks that were done by U US producers, remixers that were adopted by us because of the sound and the essence. So that might have been Closer Than Close, Rosie Gaines, I Want You, Rosie Gaines. We could put anything that Armin Van Helden did between sort of 1997 and 2001. Um, some Masters at Work stuff, Kerry Chandler, Kenny Dope, especially out of Masters at Work and maybe a little bit before... 97 that, that was the sound so it uk garage was as much to do with a sound i mean some of the biggest record another massive record roy davis jr gabriel that was never designed as a uk garage record but that record was bigger on the uk garage scene than the scene it was actually designed for in the same way that tina moore never let you go the, the you know the breakbeat two-step version which was breakbeat not two-step when it came out because two-step wasn't invented um so these these were actual sounds, styles of music as opposed to the genre. It was the vibe. The vibe was right. We played it. Yeah, it's it's interesting actually because I mean it all came together quite quick, and like I think sort of by definition, 
that would suggest that like tracks that fit the vibe were going to get pulled into it, you know, because like you say, like you, know, you, you only quit your job in, in 97 and then there was this huge boom of garage between 97 and maybe like the early, like 2001, maybe. I talked about this with Matt and then what happened after that, which we will get into definitely. But like that sort of like 95 to 98 kind of period, I guess, is where that kind of really kind of like got going. And and the other track that I haven't mentioned is R.I.P. Groove, which is obviously that you know, yeah. sort of genre defining thing, which I think that came out in 95 or 96. Yeah. So I'm just trying to like, you know, kind of sketch out a a sort of, you know, a picture of like what the scene was like, you know, during that, you know, fairly quick period, you know, of, of the mid nineties, because I mean, my experience of it was that um, like every pirate radio played jungle and then seemingly overnight, every pirate radio was just playing garage. <laughs> like it really was <laughs> like, so it seems to be like just, just really quick turnover. So like, tell me about, I mean, I'm, I'm trying to f- figure out how to frame this into a question, but like, tell me about your experience of like that period where it really like caught a huge amount of hype, right? Especially in London. Yeah, I mean, being so close to it, we 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 were always banging the drum and telling everyone, anyone that would listen about UK garage. Um, the the journey we went from pirate to kiss in 1998 and one of the challenges that we had after a year of being at Kiss was that we knew that the music needed to go national that even though it started largely in London but we still have to doff our caps to the great sort of work and the ambassadors of the genre that were in Huddersfield and Swansea and Reading and Ipswich um, and Leeds and Manchester, there were, you know, some big, big names. Um, and I'm not going to go for them all, but, you know, the V2 crew from Swansea and and and, and Sefton in in uh, Manchester and Andy J from Huddersfield, these guys were travelling to London to get their music to go and do their events around the country. So we knew that it wasn't, we knew it wasn't just a, just a London thing. And this was going on between from 1997, 1998. Um, and then it was just a case of making sure that the radio bosses and everyone knew that, come on, man, like let it let it grow, let it do its thing, let the wings flap. Yeah. And like, was there a point at which, I mean, like just keeping uh, keeping a focus on London for, for a moment, like was there a point at which, like was there a moment at which you really which it suddenly became clear that this is a this is a big thing like like an event or like you know was there a moment in time at which you suddenly thought wow this is this is really happening i mean again it happened it, it happened so quickly but it didn't i think when you stand on stage at somewhere like camden palace and it's completely sold out and everywhere you look you can see people and you pick up the flyer and you know your name is in quite big letters on that flyer you're like okay something is happening here obviously we were able to wear different clothes and drive different cars, which <laughs> which is also, um, I think I was able to buy my first house um, or, or get a mortgage for my first house, I should say. So, you, you know, there were changes that weren't, that you didn't just feel on on the stage. You know, people were giving up their jobs um, and being full-time DJs and MCs. So these were the, some of the things that were doffing it. And then obviously you're having conversations as we were with, with radio stations, with, you know, we had a 
we had a TV show. We had a Dream Team TV show. So, you know, by then you know that, okay, people are listening, but because we are around each other so much and still so grounded, you're not standing outside looking in. You're going, wow, this is nice. You know, we're getting paid to get on an aeroplane and go abroad and DJ and someone's paying for my flights as well. Yeah, yeah, sure. Okay, so hang on a sec. I didn't know about the TV show. Tell me, <laughs> tell me about the TV show. Yeah, we, we, we had a show on a, a channel called It's a Dream Team Thing, which now effectively would be um, BBC Three. So it's meant to be oh. like largely their entertainment arm. And uh, yeah, that was it. But what, what, I mean, what was it? So the, prem- the premise of the show is that me, uh, T- Timmy, Mikey and myself, we'd be like, we live together. We're in, we're in an apartment and we would have special guests come in and visit us and we'd get them to cook or sing or play games with us. <laughs> yes, yeah, so that was the, um, wow. yeah, 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 man. Yeah, you look it up, you know, Wookie and Mystique, um, Colour Girl. Wow. Yeah, it was mainly UK Garage acts that we had come in as guests. Yeah, yes. Uh, <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah. Much of much ado about nothing for 1999-2000. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at Burrow.com slash ACAST. That's Burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Sure, sure. Okay, so, okay, well, I mean, we, are, we are jumping about here, but that's okay. One question I wanted to ask you was, like, I mean, we're going way back here now, the there was the fun, kind of early phenomena of or phenomenon of raves having jungle in the main room and garage in room two, mm-hmm. and that eventually like switching right. Mm-hmm. So, what was your? I mean, did you? What, what was your kind of observation of that? I mean, was I had a? In fact, it was part of the conversation I had with Matt with MJ Cole about where we were kind of sort of theorising as to why garage made its way into room two and Matt was saying it sort of came out of a chill out room kind of idea like it was part of that because obviously it wasn't UK garage it was this kind of like the, the kind of US garage which yep. gradually turned into it so tell me a little bit about that and how it eventually sort of switched so I was I was kind of fortunate enough to play at some of the you know the better known um, jungle hardcore events that had the room two at the time um, Vision on at Rocket on Holloway Road, Thunder and Joy at the YMCA on, off Tottenham Court Road, and Roast. Um, and you know, I played in Room Two regularly for all of those events. I think there was, I think a lot the the, the sound of Garage, the vibe of Garage, meant that it could sit nicely with Jungle. Um, and 
I think that's why it was in there largely. It was, it wasn't, the music wasn't as intense. So, you know, match right to a degree with it being chill out, but it wasn't quite chill out because their rooms, those rooms used to go off. Um, and the lineups, the lineups were, you know, the lineups were brilliant. I used to play a load with, with Mike Roughcut Lloyd at the time and Matt Jam Lamont was a regular in, in those scenes and MCCKP and Munchie MC is another one who was always around at the time that we, um, yeah, those, those events used, those events used to go off, man. Don't worry about that. Even though they were room two and then, you know, in many ways, room two of roast, um, turned into Sun City and La Cosa Nostra, which were two of the really? biggest UK garage promotions. Yeah. That's that's really interesting. So so exactly how did that happen? Like, what was the direct link there? Well the direct link would have been, you know, the the, the people who ran, promote and owned La Cosa Nostra were very good friends with the guys that owned uh, and promoted Roast and Got it. okay. You know that was that was it really, and at the same time, Sun City was w w was born, um, and and the, the demand was there. I mean, those guys, the Lacoste and Nostra guys, would have been really astute. They'd have gone out and gone, wait a minute, they've put these guys in room two. It's heaving in there. Let's do an event <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and I guess then the, like the rest was history, right? So, as they say, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's yeah. Okay, um, so. We're up to this kind of like the the peak of the bubble, shall we say, sort of like 99, 98, 99, 2000. And there was a huge amount of hype and there were, you know, tunes in the charts. There was like, you know, off people like Artful Dodger were just, and obviously Craig David had emerged and it had got to a point where it was definitely not an underground scene anymore. I mean, if you're doing a TV show, right, you know, it's, it's, it's no longer pirate radio, right? It's, um, <laughs> it's, it's something a lot more than that. Now, like the subsequent period, it all went a bit wrong, I think it's fair to say, in, in the sort of early 2000s. So I guess my question is, like, were there hints in that, in that, in that kind of like peak, like frenzy period of, of the late 90s were there were there hints at all as to what might follow and when I say what might follow I'm I guess what I'm getting at is like yeah what happened subsequently with the kind of slight split that happened in the music with the grime thing and the sort of MC led sides of it but also the kind of stuff that happened with the crowd trouble and all that all those sorts of things which kind of put a dampener on the whole thing so I mean did you see that coming at all or any of it in in that sort of hype period um I mean, the thing, the thing. Like, I think I, I, I would say the golden period, depending on what your um, value is around golden, would be between ninety nine and two thousand and one, maybe two thousand and two. We joined Radio One in in two thousand and left. Then two thousand and three was our was our last show. Now, the the, the thing is, you don't get any warnings for this. Um, I would go on record and say that MCs have been around and have been as part of Garage as I have ever since. Um, and whether, again, you know, people like MC Creed, who is the godfather MC, that's what they all count. But you, you're going to speak to all of the other MCs that have been around for 20, 20 odd years. So MCs weren't a new thing. Um, I with regards to the, the point on it not being underground, 
to on the contrary that even though we were on national radio, I still was twice as nice resident. And I can assure you that twice as nice as a club night was still as underground as it got. Even though everybody knew of it and everyone wanted to be in there, the music was real. It was authentic. The vibe was authentic. We wouldn't, I wouldn't have to compromise my choices. Again, on the contrary, I knew if I was playing at a first leisure club on a Thursday night or a Saturday night, I would be playing a different set to what I would play at Twice As Nice. The dubs, the dubs would come out for Twice As Nice, the brand new tracks, you know, the fresh cuts from from MJ Cole or Wookie would be played at Twice As Nice on a Sunday. So even though we had our heads definitely above the parapet, there were still many, many really underground events going on. And with regards to the, you know, the trouble, it was a popular it was a popular genre. Everybody wanted to, to be in it. There were, I suppose, socioeconomic reasons why things were going on the way they were going on. And unfortunately, too many of them happened in our clubs on our dance floors. But, you know, we had, at that stage, we had an amazing, we had an amazing run. And in the same way that you speak to people in Jungle, they'll say, oh, the music got dark. You speak to people in Grime, oh, the music got too dark. People say that about Garage. I think that with these underground genres that start from the street, this is kind of what, you know, this is kind of what happens. Um, history has shown it. It happened before us. It's happened after us. Yeah. Yeah, yeah totally. Okay, so um, continuing the spirit of, of jumping around, let's go back to Twice as Nice, right? Because it, as you mentioned, that's that's a really key night. Mm-hmm. And the fact that it was on a Sunday as well, because that was one really important thing about, or, or kind of like an important feature of, of Garage in that period, is like Sunday night was a, was a Garage night, right? It was a, it was a big thing. And, and yeah. Twice as Nice, obviously a big part of that. So tell me about how Twice as Nice developed into the thing that it, you know, into the important thing that it became. So again, the, the, the Sunday, and I'm, I'm glad you just mentioned that because the scene originally was called the Sunday scene because it started out being so small that no club owner would give you their venue on a Friday or a Saturday night. But what they'd say is that you could come in on a Sunday morning or Sunday afternoon and Frog and Nightgown um, started out as an after party to Ministry of Sound on a sort of Sunday morning, seven o'clock. Um, if you think uh, Grey's, which was then the next, well, well, not the next, but another big massive after party, that was also on a Saturday night, Sunday morning. So sun, Sunday afternoon, you could be raving. Um, <laughs> but twice as nice, like I said, was uh, earlier. Um, we were, we all DJed, um, Matt, Carl, Timmy, Mikey and myself, all DJed at the Pleasure Playground. So we were all residents. And then when that venue lost its licence, the, the two promoters at the time sort of had a different view and opinion of what they should do, taking the brand forward and where they should go. So... Um, one partner went and started a Sunday night at Adrenaline Village on, on on the embankment and the other promoter, Steve, started Twice As Nice, which myself and Matt Jam Lamont went to be residents at. So that that started out and, you know, it was it was a new night, it was a big venue, we we had our struggles, but Steve and and Joe and Katrina who were running a night at a the time, they absolutely had their you know, they weren't going to give up. They really believed in it. And we managed to get to the first bank holiday and uh, we were absolutely rammed. And then from there on in, 
I've said it before, I think twice as nice as far as club nights go, and maybe I'm biased, but maybe I'm not, was the jewel in the crown of, uh, of UK garage club nights. And I think largely because it was on a Sunday night, it was, it was the place where everyone wanted to go. If you turned up on any Sunday night, you'd bump into other DJs and MCs and say to them, oh, are you working tonight? And they'd be like, no, I'm just hanging out. It's where people came to hang out, yeah, yeah. even people that were. That's when you know it's good, right? That's when you know it's good. There you go. So, you know, that was, and, and, and I'm still, you know, I'm proud to say it. And I've done so much in my career, but I will never forget the um, the nights at Twice As Nice and how important Twice As Nice has been for my career. You know, it's um, it, brilliant night, brilliant memories. Yeah, just some of the best. So for people who didn't get to go, tell me about, just describe the venue and, um, you know, just the general kind of like, what were the parties like? But I, yeah, describe the venue first. So the venue, if you went into the venue on a, on, on a, on a Thursday night, um, <laughs> you'd be like, okay, uh, what, what, like, what is this? Um, Martin Lana, Martin Liberty Lana used to do a Friday night in the same venue. Um, but the production we used to put in on a Sunday, if you went in there on a Sunday, you'd be like, wow, the sound system, we brought in extra sound systems, sound system like Roger, um, who I still speak to, the sound in there was unbelievable, which was another reason why I look forward to playing there as an old sound system guy. Um, it was decorated beautifully and people made the effort. And that's what I think made it stand out. It was a Sunday night and people literally wore their Sunday best. Um they drank champagne like no other venue in Europe and that's officially from Moe Chandon. So it just was the place to go and it was, you know, when when I watch um, videos of old club nights, you know, whether it be Hacienda or going further back and we're talking about Studio 54, it was a privilege to get in. Turning up did not guarantee you entry and, you know, I was a resident DJ of that night. That's really interesting there's a couple of things there actually. So the door policy, absolutely. And and door policies is something that we've talked about a lot on the show and how kind of useful they can be in building the vibe mm-hmm. of a club. But also, I mean, it's funny that you mentioned champagne because I mean, like shoes and champagne, right? That's, that, that was the kind of garage thing, right? And it's so funny. And I think like there's going to be a lot of people in particularly in Europe, listening to this, who are familiar with the music, but probably aren't so familiar with what the scene was like. And just mm-hmm. the concept of having to wear a pair of shoes mm-hmm. to get into a club was so, I mean, that's so different to the kind of, like the, the kind of quote unquote rave culture, right? Which is, which is always just like, you know, wear what you want and you can come in. But like Garage was, it always had that, that sort of smart kind of aspect to it, mm-hmm. didn't it? Where, where did that come from? I don't, you know, it was just, it was just that thing. It, it was just the time that people wanted to, just wanted to dress up um, and maybe come away from, I mean, what preceded us was the jungle where it was the other way that people would go and wear trainers, but they would rave and jump around. And I suppose when you're dancing uh, for six hours to, to BPMs ranging between 170, 180 or 160, 180, yeah, maybe, maybe that is a challenge to do it in, um, to do it in leather sold shoes but you know it's what came with it it was the shoes it was the shirts the jackets everybody just everybody just dressed up and more importantly they didn't dance like they were dressed up 
they came out well dressed and they sweated they danced <laughs> like their lives depended on it and went home and put the clothes in the dry cleaners and then you, you came again the following week and that was it <laughs> I mean yeah I mean that kind of thing just doesn't exist now like it really doesn't there isn't I can't think of a music scene certainly not of this kind of lineage which has that kind of mentality I guess amongst the uh, um, amongst the crowd but let me ask you about about door policies because um, I mean we've talked about it on the show in the context of the Burkine door policy and how important that has been in keeping that venue like sort of good right because I mean like I mean, you can't just let anyone into a club and expect it to keep its vibe, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, I mean, like, so what kind of, what what would get you turned away? Was it, I mean, presumably the dress code was pretty important. Tell me about that. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes it could be, I I mean, I I will have mixed emotions about um, door policies because as a black man living in England, they've often been used as covert racism tactics, right? But I think that, it was it was situations where if you turned up in too big a group of guys, that would be deemed as that's only going to end one way. If you didn't lo- look like you made any effort, that wasn't going to be good for the overall vibe. If you looked too young, that wasn't going to be too too good for the vibe. And if you turned up late, the queue was too big. You just weren't going to get in. So, you know, I always used to say to people, just come early, man. Dress smart. Don't come in a big group. Get there early. The chances are you'll get in. And then that's it. But then people just started coming earlier and earlier for that same reason. And that's how you, you know, you, you create that vibe. I'd come around the corner, I'd come over Vauxhall bridge and then come around the corner. and be just like, wow, look at that, man. You know, look at that. I, I'm smiling as I'm saying it because I remember it clearly. Yeah. 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 So, okay. So it's interesting that you mentioned the, uh, the kind of racial aspects to, to door policies generally. And then, I think quite a lot of, um, well, certainly the perception was, I mean, we, we touched upon the, the kind of crowd trouble element and then there was the the sort of police, moving forward a little bit, like the police kind of reaction to that. And I think that was, I think that was quite reasonably seen in a kind of sort of racially um, yeah. like tinged light. Yeah. And like Garage had a perception of being, I mean, well, it had a perception of being black music essentially. And that's a term yeah. that, um, it's kind of loaded in, in some respects, but I mean, London being London, as you mentioned at the top, like it's an extremely multicultural place and it's, you know, it's, it's not majority white in stark comparison to the rest of the UK and the music scenes that come out of London do reflect that. I mean, to, to what extent is it true to say that Garage was black music or is, is black music, would you say? You know, the thing is with it is it's always connotations, right? That, if you're going to talk about it being black, will would I ever talk about it being black in terms of success? Because let me tell you, as a as a genre that started from the streets, I've, I will hold um, that genre up against any other for its successes. Whatever your measure of success is, the the superstars that it made, the other novellos, all right, no Grammys, but number ones gold platinum discs amazing debut albums like we for 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 a genre that like i said came from absolutely nowhere but always a connotation is that oh we talk black we talk trouble we talk violence now 
I go to Glastonbury, I see fights. I go to football matches, I see fights. They're never ever termed as white, right? So I will always stand up and uh, vociferously defend UK garage or any connotation if black, inverted commas, is being used in that way. Um, because I don't think it's... Um, I don't think it's fair and I think it's it's like a bit of a cheap shot, really. Um, oh, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Because, you know, look, MJ Cole is definitely not black and a lot of his success has come from UK Garage and I could say the same for the Wide Boys and I could say the same for... I mean, listen, I could go on there now. I stopped at two, but I could, I could keep going. <laughs> sure. We could talk Daryl B. We could talk, we could talk Hermit. We could talk Leanne from Sweet Female Attitude. We could talk Lindsay Moore. Um, we, we don't just have to stop there. DJ Zinc, you know, these guys aren't black, but they have absolutely benefited from, from UK garage as a genre. So yeah, you might turn around and go, yeah, but Timmy Magic and Mikey B and Wookie and Spoonie and Carl Tough Enough Brown. Yeah, but, these guys have these guys have done their part for the scene as well you know yeah i mean i guess i guess what i was getting at is like like in the context of london and i guess sort of racial politics generally like yeah. like how how useful is it do you think like just to use that term like black music or sort of music of black origin i mean i, I mean i'm 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 sort of conscious here of sitting here as a white guy and i don't I'm not seeking to sort of diminish the sort of cultural impact, mm -hmm. you know, of, of the black community in, in the UK, which is obviously huge and like, you know, disproportionately big, certainly. Mm -hmm. But like, just in terms of, um, like, like I said, is it a useful term, do you think, in sort of, as a general thing? I mean, this is the thing, and, I, and I, I'll say what I said earlier, that it's useful if you're going to be balanced, it's useful if you're going to give credit in equal measure. What tends to happen is that unless you're talking Mobo as a brand, when they say black, there's normally going to be, oh, you know, it's like Jungle or like Grime that came after it. Oh yeah, it's black and it's the problems that everyone associates. But like I said, if you're going to have that fair conversation, then you're going to have to talk about all of the legends that are absolutely woven into the fabric of UK music, not UK black music, of UK music and I'm talking Fabian Groove Rider I'm talking Goldie I'm I'm talking Tough Jam Dream Team obviously I'm I, I'm biased you're going to talk Wookie you're then going to go post us you're going to talk Boy Better Know you're going to talk Wiley you're going to talk Skepta you're going to talk Dave you're going to talk you're going to talk um, yeah. Stormzy who again even though Stormzy and, and, and Dave, you wouldn't necessarily say Grime, or you definitely wouldn't say that about Dave. You're, you're going to go. That's the lineage, right? That's the lineage of of, of, of where it yeah. comes from. So, if you're going to talk about it in black terms, shine the light up on these guys that have been trailblazers and have, you know, like what, listen, what, what what Dave and Stormzy and and, and Skepta have done since is, is taking it to another level. But whilst we're going to talk about those guys we've also got to mention you know the amazing work that Fabio and Groove Rider and Goldie did back then um it, before us and you know maybe what 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 struck us apart is that UK Garage was very is very vocal led and that doesn't mean that people like Wookie or Zinc haven't had amazing instrumental records or Jameson or the Wide Boys but the vocals meant that it would played on the radio and that's 
a massive reason why it grew at the rate and the speed that it did. Yeah, it gave it that kind of commercial accessibility, didn't it? Yes. And the question that I wanted to ask you really was about the concept of like commercial success. Yeah. And um, how you guys sort of felt about that. Because obviously coming from an underground scene, there's sometimes a bit of you know people you know use the word kind of selling out and that's something that we've talked about on the show quite a lot yeah but you know you talked about the like vocals being a feature of the music from from early on and how that lent it kind of potential for commercial success but how did you guys like as a kind of group of of people who are the big guys in the scene as it were like how did you feel about commercial success and was there ever a sense of like you're selling out being a bad thing well i don't think anybody um or no one that i'd like to speak of uh has sold out in any way shape or form i think there's a fundamental difference between people making good music that more people want to hear and then it ends up being a, a success than someone compromising their integrity so i look at all of the big the big UK garage records and we could talk of the success of Shanks and Bigfoot and Doolally and DJ Luck and MC Nee and NNG featuring Callahan and Tough Jam. Um, we could look at Dream Team records. We could look at So Solid and all of those records that had chart success were played in the underground clubs. So it's not as though those records as a DJ who had you know, shows as part of the dream team and individually on national radio show wouldn't have played those in the clubs. And I think if we use the clubs as the benchmark as to what is underground, then I don't think, you know, any of those records, like I said, weren't played heavily before they were commercial records. So when I say commercial records, I mean, had commercial success. Right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, that's, it's really interesting, isn't it? I mean, because that, that I mean, I'm comparing it, I suppose, to sort of to drum and bass in jungle, right? Which is, mm -hmm. I, I guess, the sort of the parallel scene which was kind of going on. And it was always, a, I don't think there was ever really competition in that kind of a way. But I think, like, sort of, certainly as a as a music fan at the time, yeah, like we kind of looked at those two things, and and that was the kind of feature of Gage. And I, and I suppose, like, you know, what what we talked about before about the, the kind of champagne and shoes element to it as well. Yeah. You know, like it, Garage just had this, this image and I suppose commercial success really kind of like, it made much more sense, you know, I think for, for Garage to be sort of popular in that kind of a way versus jungle drum and bass. I mean, does, does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, it crossed over. I think uh, if crossing over is the, the more appropriate word or phrase, then yeah, because again, the, the the music, the genre lent itself more to being played on daytime radio. And that kind of like the, that's the trigger for the commercial success, right? You get played on daytime radio, you're more likely to chart, more people hear it, more people like it, more people request it. And so it goes. But again, you listen to an MJ Cole record, you can't turn around and say, you know, he sold out in any way, shape or form. Just people heard it and went, what an amazing piece of music. I really like it. Now, what, um, what, 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 what Matt always did really well is that he did a dub. So you could choose whether you played the full ver vocal version of Sincere or you played the Sincere dub. But nobody could say, yeah, well, he's, he's, he's sold out in any way, shape or form. Um, I, I actually could argue that as he got became more and more established, he 
went more and more underground. He went deeper and deeper. So, you know, and I think the same could be the same could be said of Wookie, um, who, again, you know, battle was battle was a success. Many people class battle as their favourite garage record of all time. It's a massive under. You know, I was playing that for weeks before it was before it was released. Um, so again, I'm someone who, you know, can speak about these these records and this matter from the ground up because I was you know part of a, an outfit that were right there playing those records um, before they were even signed in many cases. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And I mean, like the, the follow-up, well, the immediate question then to ask, you know, regarding you guys in, in particular was, you know, with regards to your own productions, because I mean, the Dream Team theme, right, is one of the kind of seminal UK garage records, but mm-hmm. you didn't release a whole lot more. I mean, there were remixes, yeah. right? But there wasn't a, ma- there's not like a massive catalogue no. of Dream Team productions, despite having, you know, uh, really really like seminal producer in in your ranks right so yeah tell me why that that never really happened so i I, it's a question that we've often asked ourselves and um when i look around other scenes uh, other genres other djs there are like three three strands that your, your your dj normally takes um obviously the clubbing and the djing another one would be broadcasting and another one would be music production. All right. So those are the kind of the three strands that I've identified. And what I've realized is that most people do two of the three. Most people don't do all three. So if we, if you picked out any name from any of the scenes, including house scene, I would go, they really do two of the three. They may have touched all three, but they really are known for two of the three. That could be, Roger Sanchez, that could be Pete Tong, that could be MJ Cole, that could be Wookie, that could be Norris the Boss Windross, that could be Grant Nelson, that could be Dave Pierce, that could be Annie Mack, that could be Sarah Story. All of these people tend to do two of the three. Now, our two were clubbing and I guess radio, even though we did do a bit of production. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting way of looking at it, actually, because you're totally correct. And those are great examples, right? Uh, 100% see that uh that's that's really interesting but just in terms of um that track in particular Mm. how did that come together were you all in the studio together for that how did it how did it work yeah kind of like you know timmy timmy was our in-house executive producer timmy normally took care of most of the studio stuff um in the same way that i think the radio ended up being more of my baby not exclusively because you'd hear us all on air but you know, I would have a closer link relationship with the producer and I would drive the desk and steer it in the way that Timmy would steer our production. So he would have done the, the, the majority of the work. He would have got the body of it down. And then, you know, myself and Mikey, we would have road tested it. We would have come and said, this could be extended. This could be dropped out a little bit. And then, and then we're away. That's it. Yeah. And I mean, it's a great track. It really is. Yeah. It's got, I mean, I was listening to it this morning, actually, and um, it's got that real kind of cheeky <laughs> element to it. You know, it's like it's really great. Um, OK, the last thing I want to I want to go through on on the, on the garage thing is the emergence of grime. Yeah. Right. And so at this point, I was 
a bedroom garage DJ mm-hmm. and I was in the, in the record shops and buying records and like, you know, I was beginning to play on radio as well. And I, and my, my sort of experience of it as an observer was that there was a bit of a, well, there was quite a significant split between the, the kind of old heads as it were mm-hmm. and the kids who were making this music on playstations basically mm-hmm. <laughs> i guess is how it was put at the time and probably wasn't quite that simple but i'm sure you know what i'm talking about so i mean to what extent is that a fair characterization to what extent was there sort of maybe not full-on beef but like to what extent was there a bit of like noses put out of joint if you know what i mean with the kind of young whippersnappers coming and changing the sound a little bit well i mean i've got to say that my nose wasn't you know i can only speak for my own perspective that my nose wasn't put out of joint in any way shape or form because those guys were doing their thing they were calling it as they saw it they were playing it as they heard it in the same way that when jungle evolved into drum and bass right when in the way that uk uh us soulful house and garage morphed into uk garage so uh, both like we were a part of the the change and what i know my experience is that there will always be a change. It's cyclical. It goes round. It moves. It transforms. That's what keeps it. That's what keeps it interesting. So you, US house and garage morphed into UK garage. UK garage morphed into grime. Grime morphed into drill. This is kind of how it. This is just what happens. So would my nose be put out of joint? No, no, no way. Like our careers have been too successful for it to be put out of joint if you like a grime record you play it if you don't like the grime record don't play it don't take it so personally it's that's not how it goes so from that end you know it was saying that you know we didn't do we weren't MCs. we were djs there's some grime records that i play there's some grime records that i love there's some grime artists that i love i don't love every, every record but then i don't love every every uk garage record either so you know i don't know if that really answers your question yeah. i mean what i do know is that it it moves on, music moves on, sounds move. Sure, absolutely. I mean, okay, just um, stepping, looking at it more generally, I guess, like, mm. I mean, was there a kind of like, you know, with the people, they're all kind of like old heads, like, you know, people like Jason Kay and Norris Boss mm. and these guys who were the real, um, I mean, I'm including you guys in that too, but like, I mean, was there a sort of atmosphere of a little bit of resentment at all that you, that you picked up on? I mean, like I said, if we got into individual, um, if we got into like individual cases, yeah, you're you're always going to get that. There's just like when we were coming out uh, with UK Garage, there would been there were some people that really outspoken about the sound from the US Garage scene, but you know that's their. I really didn't spend any time or attention on it when I was receiving it from that side. So I'm less likely to receive it from the other side because I'm like, listen, I've been a part of the change before. I know what it's like when you're, you might feel that you're not getting a look in. It's not that you're not getting a look in, but no one's going to turn around and go, I'm going to step over, have, have a career as a producer. Like it does, it's a competitive world. Everyone is trying to do their thing. So, you know, yeah, there would have been individual cases. I'm 100% certain and sure, but my thing is like music's for everyone. And if you don't like it, listen to something else don't take it personally i don't stand up screaming about rock music i just don't <laughs> listen to it on mass but i also know as a music lover that there's some people that absolutely it makes their day so i would 
I love the fact that your day can be made by a genre of music, even though I don't really like that type of music. Yeah. 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 Okay. So we talked earlier about the involvement of the police mm-hmm. and the kind of racial politics around the crowd trouble and all of that stuff. And the grime scene really kind of accelerated that. Mm-hmm. And we had, um, you know, stuff like the you know, Form 696 mm-hmm. and the, I think, quite you know justified sort of anger around that mm-hmm. and how yeah it seemed to be pretty obviously racially um well, there was an obvious racial angle to that yes which i mean if you let me look i was yeah went back and read about it and it's just mind-blowing yeah really you know, the fact that the promoters had to estimate the ethnicity of their crowd i mean that's just incredible yeah. right it's just yeah. ridiculous so i mean fr- from your own like career at that point I mean, I talked about this with with MJ Cole, with Matt, and he was talking about how his second album came out around, two, I think it was 2002, 2003, um, and mm-hmm. the, the wind had been taken out of the sails of the scene, and a lot of that was due to the raves getting shut down, basically. Yeah. So tell me about your experience of that period, because it must have been really difficult for you guys, I imagine. Well, it's interesting because, because uh, Matt, as a producer at that time, he wasn't really DJing that much. Right. So he would have, he would have felt that the wind is really appropriate way of putting it. The wind taking it out of his sails, or at least blowing in a different direction from a producer standpoint for us, it was just, there were less, less events to DJ at. So from, as a broadcaster, we were still, we were still on air. I was still on radio one, even though we stopped, we stopped doing our Sunday morning show in 2003 but we had our Sunday night show, um, which was more of a kind of mix show till 2005. And I was still on the station until 2006, but I was doing weekend breakfast. So it was a slightly different, well, it's a very different type of music. But from a DJing angle, yes, the club started shutting down. There was less events, less promoters. So we, we, we absolutely felt the backlash of it. And you know, yeah, racial profiling. It was a, a the, the, that form was a disc, a way that they could disguise crowd safety under the guise of crowd safety. Um, and yeah, we, we all felt the backlash of it. Yeah, we could have been, I say we, people that are involved in the scene could have been better behaved in the venues, but I don't think it was only just that. It was used as an excuse as much as it was used as a reason, in my opinion. And do you think, I mean, like obviously the, police and, and particularly the Met have got a pretty terrible history with, with this sort of thing and you know going back decades right and so so do you think it's just it was like that element to it do you think that was just a reflection of the culture in the police force at the time you know what I, I, it's a funny one right because I'm old enough to remember the early warehouse and, and, and acid house days of Raven in Fields they went through that as well Jungle and drum and bass went through that. Garage went through it. Grime went through it. Drill went through it. But if you actually think and you go, the scenes like in Clubland, Garage had an amazing run of club nights and club events up and down the country. In a way that Grime didn't. Like Grime was a massive music genre, but didn't have a scene, a club scene in the way that Garage did. Now, Maybe that's because the winds were absolutely taken. In fact, there was no wind, not even taken out of their sails because we could use the analogy of the wind in garage because some of us were still DJing. But with grime, it was like there aren't, there were grime artists, 
but the, the scene wasn't there as a scene in the way that garage was a scene, a club scene. Um, and, but all of us have, all of us, have, all of those underground, let's for the purpose of, a, for speed, black scenes or deemed to be black scenes, all had at some point the authorities down on them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's just, I mean, it's un- unavoidable, like it was observation, isn't it? You know, it's just obvious. And it's very difficult to look at that in anything other than a, a sort of institutionally racist paradigm, right? One, 100%. And it's, you know, again, if, if you ask the question, maybe you can explain why it isn't. And I think we're now in a place and a position where we can ask that questions because since 2000, you've had other genres come along that have suffered the same fate over that period of time. We now come out the other side of it and it's like, yeah, it's just, look, it, it's it's one of those, it's deep rooted. We know a lot more in 2022 than we did in 99 or 2000. And even though some of us knew it because some of us had felt its wrath before, there've been, there has been so many things happened since then that now rather than us being the ones that have to answer the question, so they are now accountable. They have to answer those said questions. Yeah, I 100% agree with that. And it's depressing that we have to talk about it, frankly. And I'm not completely sure that the situation is really any better now than it was then. As you mentioned with Drill, right? Because a very similar sort of thing has seemingly happened with that genre of music. And and it reflects in the amount of events events that happen and events are really what build a scene i mean going back to what you were talking about with with twice as nice yes i mean and i've experienced it with dubstep with forwards and you know with certain techno nights and other places and without that connection with the audience it really it's really difficult for a scene to really grow like that you know and and yeah and and there you have it and i suppose that you know i think back to the heydays of UK Garage and, you know, you would have had Gas Club, Club Coup, both in Leicester Square on a Friday night. You would have had Liberty at Coliseum on a Friday night. On a Saturday night, you would have had Pure Silk. You could have had Sun City. You could have had La Cosa Nostra on a Saturday night. You had Twice As Nice on a Sunday night. These were just in London, guaranteed. And these were just the headline gigs. That That's not to mention all the other events that popped up that would have been doing one-offs and, you know, various smaller or sometimes even uh, big large-scale events. But those were regular events happening every single week. It's it's ridiculous to think of it like that. Yeah. It was a great scene. It was an amazing thing to be a part of. I mean, just as a member of the audience, but it must have been great to be, you know, in the position that you were. Incredible. Yeah, it was. And again, I I look back on those days with with, with great fondness, you know, even though... um, you know, like, I, I mean, I just said La Cosa Nostra every week. La Cosa Nostra wasn't every week, but then it was such a massive event when it was on. Um, same with Sidewinder when that was on. Um, same with Back to 95 when that came. It was just, you know, there were a lot, there was a genuine underground club scene and, you know, bringing it back to the, the part of the conversation about the music and crossing over or selling out, depending on whichever way people want to look at it, I guarantee you, all of those, there's not one big UK garage record that wasn't played in a club. And you might turn around, you know, even Daniel Bedingfield's got to get through this. We were all playing it as an instrumental before the vocal. Yeah, it was a totally different track, wasn't it? Yeah. You know, all, all, all of those records, I still listen to, 
you know, do Lally. I think Sweet Like Chocolate crossed over quicker because of the work that Straight From The Heart do Lally had done, but very similar in sound. But I, I, I still love do Lally Straight From The Heart. Oh yeah, it's great. Absolutely. Such a great record. But again, because you have a responsibility as a, or deemed to be a cutting edge DJ, once it hits top of the national charts, top 10, you know, oh, I can't really, can't play this all the time anymore. But I can still play it now as a, nostalgic heritage track but I, I also won't have anybody disrespect it and going oh it's so no it was never made like that it was a, just a good record that became popular that is it absolutely and then just to bring it up to the present day I guess just the the volume of those Mm-hmm. Uh, hits you know the volume of those big tunes enables you to do stuff like the garage classical thing that you mentioned at the top yeah right I mean that must be a great thing to be a part of as well yeah it's amazing and I think that it's it's beautiful to see all of these acts and artists 20 25 years later on performing um you know we names that everyone's familiar with Elizabeth Troy and Kelly LaRock and Lifford and Nene um, and then you've got people like Aisha who is Timmy Magic's daughter um, performing My Desire um, Thomas Jules who wasn't a part of UK Gary's the scene as such but has worked extensively with Rudimental he comes and he he sings two three songs for us as well phenomenal artist so you know it, it's beautiful that it's covered so much ground and so much time and you know Richie Dan comes out and always lights up the stage you know hearing so solid and heartless perform those massive club tracks with an orchestra you know it's it's it's, it's another sometimes I just look back I, I stand at the side of the stage and look and smile like a proud parent um, because that's the kind of feeling that you get because it's like you know we've been doing this for a while and I know the effort, the energy, the highs, the lows, the, the arguments, the breakdowns, the repairs, the not being paid, the chasing for money, the fallouts. I know all of the backstories and then you see people go and perform and you go, that's what it's all about. That's what it's all for. Yeah. And that's a great place to finish. Thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. It's been absolutely, absolutely great. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me. And um, yeah, it's great to talk about. It's great to share. Um, It's great to remind myself (laughs) of of, of some of the stuff because it's not the typical conversation that, um, that I have, but no, it's it's great. And, and, And thank you. And thanks for caring about it. You know, thanks for even being bothered about our, our little scene that started out just trying to make 60 people dance on a Saturday night, Sunday morning. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. Thank you. Top man. Yeah, that was DJ Spoonie. How good was that? I really, really enjoyed it. I I got quite emotional listening back to that after, after the conversation, proper goosebumps from some of those garage stories. Genuinely, genuinely great to hear him talking with so much passion about that period of music and it really was amazing you know I was a participant to the extent that I went to a few of his shows as I said in a conversation and you know was a bedroom DJ bought some of the records was going to the record shops and stuff but certainly wasn't anywhere near the DJs so it was um it was so good to hear him talking about it in the way that he did and it's great that they're able to do stuff like the garage classical thing now and just kind of celebrate their achievements a little bit in those shows. And yeah, wow. Really, really loved that episode, I have to say. It was great. It exceeded my expectations. 
and my expectations were pretty high for this. So, okay, we're, we're about done here. Just to reiterate, if you enjoyed the episode this week, you can support us on Patreon, patreon.com slash Tons and tons of bonus content. And um, yeah, follow the Spotify playlist, link in the show notes. If you're not able to do the Patreon thing, then leave us a review or a rating, please. Please, five-star button, definitely helps. And um, yeah, you can join us in the Discord. There's a private Patreon area, but there's also a public area in the Discord. So hotfreshercornings.com slash Discord. If you want to drop in and say hello, ask me anything. And um, yeah, we're done. I will check you same time, same place next week for the next episode of the Not A Diving Podcast. Thank you. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.